This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. Well, there's another blot on Luther's character that occurred toward the end of his life. Concerns the, uh, the bigamy of Philip of Hesse. The bigamy of Philip of Hesse. Hesse, H-E-S-S-E, was one of those regions like Saxony and Ducal Saxony. And Philip Hesse was one of those major German princes who supported Luther. He was one of those guys who was absolutely crucial to the Reformation getting its... getting. Uh, a foothold in Germany. There's no doubt about it but that Luther very much welcomed the conversion of Philip of Hesse to Lutheranism. That meant that Hesse, the territory, was also Lutheran, along with Saxony. Philip of Hesse was a supporter of Luther. He also had married Christina, the uh, daughter of the du of Duke George of Saxony, it was, like so many others, a political marriage. Uh, it wasn't long, but that within a few weeks after his marriage, uh, he wasn't all that keen on her. Uh, you know, of course, that in the 16th century, marriage for royals was different than marriage of average people. People got married because it suited their political purposes. And because they uh, gave themselves over to this kind of marriage, they felt that they were entitled to uh, a little extracurricular activity, if you know what I mean. I mean, after all, they had, they had given their lives uh, to, to, to furthering political causes, and so they end up marrying to solve political problems sometimes. And no doubt, uh, Philip of Hesse felt generally the same way. So there's sort of a different ethic for royals than there were for average folk. And pretty much everyone recognized that, or whether they agreed with it entirely or not, it's a different question. But uh, it was pretty much the norm. Uh, so Philip, like so many other royals, felt he was entitled to have uh, numerous extramarital affairs, and he did. Uh, but Philip was a little different from a lot of other royals because it bothered him. His conscience bothered him. It didn't stop him from having affairs, but his conscience bothered him. Uh, and the one way we know that is that he refused to take communion for 15 years. He felt that he hadn't, uh, wasn't living right uh, he couldn't stop himself, and he felt that he shouldn't partake. And so he didn't for 15 years. 
after his conversion. Well, things are going along pretty swimmingly for him, except for the Lord's... He can't partake of the Lord's Supper. He's got his wife over here, and he's got his uh, mistresses over here, a whole string of them. Everything's going along just fine. And then he runs into and meets a very beautiful young lady by the name of Margaret Vandersall. I'll spell it. V-A-N, one word. D-E-R, another word. Saul, S-A-A-L. Marguerite or Margaret Vandersall. She was one a member, one of the daughters of uh, some people at his court in Hesse. And she was a looker. He was very much attracted to her. And of course, being attracted to her, he thought he might try to enlist her as one of his mistresses. But Margaret's mother said, no go. If you want my daughter, you've got to marry her. Well, this, of course, put Philip in a quandary. What am I to do? I want this girl. So he starts scratching his head. You know, what should I do? Well, he starts talking to some of his friends. And he lights upon the idea of bigamy. He thinks, you know, they did it in the Old Testament. Why can't we do it now? And this is a very appealing idea to Philip. And he goes to his wife that he doesn't particularly love anyway, and she probably doesn't love him all that much. He says, Christina, would it bother you if I had another wife? Christina says, hey, go for it. <laughs> as long as my children are the rightful heirs. So Christina, she's all for it. That's not a problem to her. Well, now he's a Lutheran, you see, and he's, you know, he's got this, this theology sort of nagging at his heels, this ethic that Protestants are supposed to have. And so he goes to his old buddy Luther and Melanchthon and Bootser and says, hey guys, what do you think about my having a second wife? Now, what's interesting is that this is not the first time that Philip asked Luther about bigamy. In 1526, early on, a good, uh, what, 15 years before this point, and I'm talking about 1540, 1542, 1540. But some 10 or 15 years earlier, the same Philip, younger Philip, had gone to Luther and said, what do you think about bigamy? And Luther thundered back, said, no, that's not right. You can't do that. I'd never support that. <clears throat> 1539, 1540, Luther changed his mind. And he supported, along with Melanchthon and Martin Bucer, three of the most prominent reformers of the Reformation period, they all supported Philip in his bigamy.
Now, Luther had earlier... Uh, let me finish this here. Earlier, Luther, uh, when confronted with Henry VIII and his desire for a divorce, had made this statement. Luther said, Before I would approve of such repudiation or divorce, that's Henry's divorce, I would rather let him, Henry, marry a second queen. And in 1520, early on in his life, he had made the statement to the effect that I prefer bigamy to divorce. Apparently, uh, Philip had, had uh, those kinds of ideas had circulated and, and he'd, he'd gained hold of them, that Luther had made statements to that effect. Now, these earlier statements are not an advocacy of bigamy. They are a rejection, an intense rejection of divorce. So I don't know that we can take too much from that. Uh, at any rate, when confronted with this pressure, now please bear in mind uh, that Philip is a big gun. He's not only a royal, but he is someone that is an important uh, person in the furthering of the cause of the Reformation. He's a prince. He's a royal. Apparently Luther, in fact, Luther seems to describe this permitting and supporting Philip in his bigamy as the lesser of two evils, the other being divorce. What, what's very, very interesting in all this, you can tell that Luther's conscience is bothering him in some of his letters to Philip because he keeps saying, Don't tell anybody! Just do it quietly! And don't tell anybody you're marrying somebody else. Again and again, keep it quiet. It didn't stay quiet. Pretty soon rumors are all about and uh, people are writing letters to Luther and saying, what's this I hear about Philip and bigamy? Luther lies like a dog in the letters back to these people. No, I don't know anything about this. What? I've never heard of this. And then the cat's out of the bag. <laughs> and Philip is getting really nervous because there are potential consequences. In fact, I'll mention them a little later, that there were terrible consequences. But the cat's out of the bag, and Philip goes to Luther and says, what am I going to do now? People know what I've done. Luther's fatherly pastoral advice was, tell a big lie. Yeah. Luther said, lie like a dog. Deny it. Well, he couldn't. It was too late. Is this a blot or what? <laughs> now, why would Luther uh, change his mind and at one point reject Philip's request for support for a bigamous marriage and then later on capitulate and say, well, okay, just don't tell anybody? Well, it seems that politics played a role in Luther's change of, of perception of this problem. You see, Philip had let it be known that if Luther 
would not give his support that Philip would take Hesse and go home to the Catholics. If you won't play my game the way I want, I'll take my ball and go home. Thank you. So apparently the threat of a major Lutheran prince threatening to return to Rome struck fear in the hearts of Melanchthon, Bootser, and our dear Luther. So maybe that's what he meant by the lesser of two evils. Better to keep him in the camp uh, and give him, and he is after all a royal, and royals have different standards. We all know that. We all believe that in the 16th century. And so maybe this is just our way of conceding that he's a royal. Well, there you have it, folks. Luther supported the bigamous marriage of Philip of Hesse. And not for the most noble of reasons, I would suggest. You see, Luther was a man just like us, with frailties, inconsistencies, and I'll use this word that I've used before, hypocrisy. Maybe there was a little bit of hypocrisy involved in all of this, pertaining to, on the one hand, being a man who stressed morality and, and, a, and a high ethic, and yet he somehow, when the pressure got too great toward the end of his life, missed the boat. Is Luther still your hero? <laughs> Flaws and all, huh? Well, that's the real Luther. Uh, and when you talk about Lutheranism, uh, certainly after Luther, you're talking really in large part about Melanchthon. Melanchthon is, is a very crucial person. He was Luther's right-hand man, and when Luther died, he was the heir apparent. Uh, a bit about Melanchthon. Melanchthon and Luther. Point one. Melanchthon was something of a child prodigy. Uh, really, really brilliant. He was, I think I've mentioned this before, he was the nephew of Johann Reuchlin, the great humanist and Hebraist. And uh, Reuchlin, R-E-U-C-H-L-I-N, Johann Reuchlin. Remember in the, the great uh, debate between the humanist and Pfefferkorn? Pfefferkorn? He was the nephew of Reuchlin. Melanchthon was. So, Melanchthon was uh, quite well known as a student. Uh, he was at the University of Tübingen in Heidelberg. Although he did not read theology, he read classics, basically. Uh, he graduated at the age of 21. And he received a number of calls from various universities. I mean, everybody wanted this very, very bright chap on their faculty. And at 21, he became the first professor of Greek at Wittenberg at 21. He's a smart cookie. 
And when he came, uh, there's no evidence that he was a Lutheran. Uh, he was really just an academic at this stage. And uh, he pretty quickly came under the shadow of the great Luther. And he was, within a year, a strong advocate of Lutheranism. The young Melanchthon was. Uh, Melanchthon never uh, got a degree in theology beyond the bachelor's degree in theology. He, uh, he didn't want to get a degree in theology, although that uh, a doctorate. He wanted to maintain some distance. But he did teach in the, in, the theology, in the theology department there, as well as the Greek department at Wittenberg. Uh, one of the most important things to know about Melanchthon is that in 1521... Just been there now three years. He came to Wittenberg in 1518. In 1521, the guy who was not very much theologically inclined suddenly produces the first major systematic theology of the Reformation period. The Loci Communis. L-O-C-I Communis. In 1521. Translated, that means common places or basic concepts is another way of looking at what a loci communis is. That is to say, it's just, he picks out basic topics of theology and discusses them. And these are all the major things. Loci communis. L-O-C-I-C-O-M-M-U-N-E-S. S. Published in 1521 in one of the first major systematic works of the Reformation period. I think it is the first Protestant systematic theology. It means common places, literally translated, but you could also uh, elaborate, and that basically means basic concepts, basic theological categories or concepts. No, this is not that at all. It's, a, it's essentially a systematic theology, a very introductory level sort of thing. What had happened is he was lecturing on the book of Romans and his students were taking down his notes and they were getting ready to publish them. And Melanchthon was a little nervous because he didn't trust students. Wise man. Uh, and what he did is uh, he got a copy of what they were intending to publish and he revised it himself and then published it on his own initiative rather than let this, this flawed... Uh, uh, lecture notes get out. Uh, Luther felt that it was one of the greatest books ever written. He praised this first book to high heaven. In fact, he says it's 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 a, a much greater than anything he's ever done. And you can tell very very clearly that Melanchthon is under Luther's shadow. And Luther, as you certainly know by this stage, was, was not a systematic theologian by any stretch of the imagination. And so he really needed someone who was logical like Melanchthon. And Melanchthon makes the first attempt to systematize Luther's thought. And that's what the loci communis are. What's remarkable is here's a guy 23 years old who didn't have a lot of theological training 
producing one of the classics of the 16th century. Again, that suggests uh, something about the talents of young Philip Melanchthon. Uh, early on, it's pretty clear that Melanchthon uh, seeks to duplicate the theology of Luther almost slavishly. But what's interesting is that as he grows older, Melanchthon begins to manifest theological differences from Luther. And those differences are very gradually observed. And it's not until after Luther dies that these become very, very clear and there is a significant departure in Melanchthon from Luther. What's very interesting, and this again tells you something about Luther, it's becoming fairly clear toward the end of his life that Melanchthon's not quite with him on everything. And several people come to Luther and say, did you see what Philip wrote? Can you believe it? And Luther seems to have been a little bit concerned, but he never broke off his, his love and his friendship and support for Melanchthon. There was this, this a special affection that the old Luther had for the young Philip Melanchthon. Uh, he may have had blind rage when it came to the Jews, but he had blind love when it came to Melanchthon. And of course, that had some negative impact because he had the thumb of approval was on Melanchthon when Luther died. And that led to a great number of problems. Uh, Melanchthon, as I said, was as uh, toward the end of Luther's life, died in 46, 1546, it's becoming uh, increasingly clear to Luther that Melanchthon's and he are not exactly on the same track theologically. And yet Luther never uh, went at Melanchthon in any way. Now, yes? I'm going to mention some specific areas where there were changes. Uh, Melanchthon after Luther. Uh, all the while that Luther was alive, Melanchthon uh, is careful, although there's some hints that he's differing from Luther, he's very careful to, to stay pretty much within the boundaries. I mean, what you get is Melanchthon kind of pushing Luther uh, a little bit. Melanchthon is the one who is really behind all of those efforts to reconcile with Catholics, uh, going to, to various conferences and colloquies. Melanchthon is the one who goes to those things and is very interested and see if they can, can achieve some level of reconciliation. And Luther sort of half-heartedly says, well, okay, but I don't like it kind of stuff. And inevitably, Luther is unsatisfied with the kinds of arrangements, whatever degree of agreement can be maintained between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, so uh, the two of them uh, maintain a very close personal relationship uh, and Melanchthon is 
still deferring to Luther by and large, but he is still pushing Luther a little bit toward the end of his life. Once Luther is dead in 1547, we see something emerge very clearly in Melanchthon. He clearly, uh, in a very, very clear way, moves theologically. Uh, it seems that Luther acted and, and uh, constrained Melanchthon somewhat theologically. And once uh, Luther is off the scene, that constraint is now removed and Melanchthon begins to express himself in ways that would have never, ever been approved by Luther. Once Luther dies, there are two groups that emerge within Lutheranism. The so-called Genesio Lutherans. G-E-N-E-S-I-O Lutherans. Genesio Lutherans. These are the true Lutherans. They want to maintain Luther's theology very, very strictly. I better be careful. Uh, and then there's the other group, the so-called Philippists. That is, the followers of Philip Melanchthon. If we were to draw very broad, broad, use broad terminology here, the Genesio Lutherans are the more conservative, the Philippists are the more moderate to liberal types in the context of Lutheranism. Luther dies, and there are there were four major areas where it appeared to a lot of folk that Melanchthon had departed from Luther. I'll mention these pretty quickly. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I just want to wrap things up a little bit. First, with regard to the doctrine of predestination, it becomes, as you may or may not know, I haven't really talked much about this, but Luther was a very strong predestinarian. One sees that, if, if not explicitly, implicitly in his book against Erasmus. Uh, Luther clearly believed in a strong doctrine of predestination. Melanchthon, over the years, and particularly after Luther's death, begins to very much change on this. If you look at his early loci communes, the ones that, that Melanchthon wrote, he's right, right up with Luther on predestination. Very strong. But then after Luther dies, in the revisions of the loci communes done by Melanchthon, there is a fundamental shift. And Melanchthon really reverts back to his own humanist tendencies. Those tendencies that were very much like Erasmus. Remember when you read Erasmus? Erasmus says, God's grace is to be emphasized in salvation and all of that, but man does his little bit. Well, that's the way uh, Melanchthon looks at predestination. There is a little bit of the human will that determines God's choice of a particular person. Melanchthon is called a synergist, the late Melanchthon, because he combines both the grace of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, and all of this, and yet there is some place for the human will to be taken into consideration as a cause of divine election. So he makes a real change. It's very interesting that Calvin, who had been a pretty good friend of Melanchthon's, 
railed against him when he noticed these changes on predestination beginning, beginning to come, become very clear in some of his writings. Calvin writes letters and says, I'm very disappointed with you, Melanchthon. What's happened? Peter Martyr, who had known uh, Melanchthon as well, writes letters to him and says, Hey, what's happening theologically with you? And Melanchthon doesn't really respond. He tries to articulate his viewpoint, but there's, there's a breach between <coughs> Calvin, Peter Martyr, and Melanchthon on this question. So one major area where once Luther dies, Melanchthon really takes his theology in a direction far different from Luther's is with regard to predestination. Yes? Uh, Butcher would not have been happy with that at all. Butzer was a very strong double predestinarian. Uh, some people argue that, in fact, that's where uh, Calvin got his doctrine of double predestination was from Butzer. So he was not happy either. There's a sense in which Melanchthon is really going beyond the pale here, reverting back to an Erasmian sort of view. I think what you see in Melanchthon is his true colors, in a sense. I mean, he was trained as a humanist. It was in his genes, if you will. And I think those things, uh, with Luther, the restraining influence of Luther now gone, uh, what, what is his basic theological instinct began, begins to manifest itself. Chris? No, I, I think it's far more complex than that. I don't, I don't, I don't want to suggest that Melanchthon is, is deceptive or manipulative here. I think you have a young man who, I mean, he's 21 years old. He meets the great Luther and thinks Luther is the greatest thing he's ever seen and is genuinely converted. But, and in that, in that period of time, the 15 or 20 years, they were close colleagues. Uh, you've got to appreciate the, the power of, of Luther's personality and his cause. And I think Melanchthon very much shared always the cause of Protestantism. But as he began to, to develop his own thinking, sooner or later that was bound to happen, it seems to me. He was a very bright person with his own ideas, much more systematic than Luther. Uh, his own ideas began to emerge. And with Luther gone, it's easier for him than to take his own direction. But I'd, I wouldn't impugn his character in this at all. Another issue that, that did come up, and I have a difference of opinion with some scholars, but uh, there was one former colleague of Luther's named Osiander who felt that Philip Melanchthon had departed on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And technically, I think I probably would disagree with Osiander. I think that by and large, uh, Melanchthon stayed within... The, the original formulation. So on that count, I wouldn't give a too much credence to the challenges of Osiander and others. The third major area where there was some concern was with regard to the Eucharist. And as you know, predestination, justification. Now I've said that I felt like the predestination difference was a legitimate difference between Melanchthon and Luther. I'm not quite sure that the justification one is a legitimate departure on the part of Melanchthon from Luther. Okay? There was some criticism in Melanchthon's day 
that in fact he had departed from uh, from Luther. I'm not sure that's a valid criticism. So I'm raising, just letting you be aware of how Philip Melanchthon is being perceived by these Genesio Lutherans. The third major area is the Eucharist. And Melanchthon, once uh, Luther dies, does a complete change. He adopts and embraces a Calvinistic view, a Reformed view of the Eucharist. Uh, in fact, he and Calvin exchange letters, and it's pretty clear that Melanchthon has, has come on over to the Calvinistic side, to the Reformed side. Uh, even in the last few years of, of uh, Luther's life, uh, Calvin and Melanchthon are writing letters, and it's pretty clear that Calvin is, is making inroads in the thinking of Melanchthon on the question of the Eucharist. So the third major area was the Eucharist. And again, there was a fundamental change in Melanchthon after Luther died. The fourth area I call adiaphora. We all know what that word means, adiaphora. Things indifferent. If I were to say, it doesn't make any difference. It's not something over which we ought to fight. If I were to give you a contemporary example of something that I personally consider adiaphora, it might be the millennial question. Uh, you know, some people are willing to die for a particular millennial perspective. I would not be one of those. I would say it's not that big of a deal, whether you're a pre-mill or an amill or... <laughs> or whatever. I have, a, I have an opinion about that. But I don't think that's, that's one of those kinds of things we need to draw a line in the sand and say, this is it. Anyway, this last issue, the Adiaphora controversy or situation, is, is really rather tragic uh, for Melanchthon. He loses a great deal of credibility after Luther dies. Uh, what's at stake here is really the character of Melanchthon, at least in the eyes of the Genesio Lutherans. Now, this controversy takes us back to 1540, where Philip of Hesse, with the approval of Melanchthon, with the approval of Luther, engages in a bigamous marriage. What happened in the following years after Luther died, just about the time he died? The problem that faced Philip of Hesse after his bigamous marriage is, the, is one crucial thing kept staring him in the face, and eventually it cost Lutheranism a great deal. What was facing him was the fact that bigamy was against the law. And what happened is Charles V used this violation of the law to serve his purposes. It goes like this. To break the law, to commit bigamy by a prince, technically should have meant that he had to give up his crown. He had violated the law. And Charles V was within his legal rights to command, to demand 
that Philip stepped down as the prince of Hesse. Now, Philip wanted his cake and eat it too. He wanted to continue to be the prince and he wanted to maintain his bigamous marriage. And so what happened is when Philip, when, when Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, comes to him and says, I want to make a deal with you, Philip. He was vulnerable and he did make a deal with Charles V. The deal was this. Charles said, what if I were to raise an army and I were to attack all of the German princes? Would you fight back? And what happened, it was pretty clear that what Charles V was asking Philip to do was to remain neutral if Charles V attacked all of his Lutheran cohorts. And Philip agreed that he would not defend his Lutheran brothers. And in exchange, Charles V would not ask him to step down for having violated the law. There was, as you may or may not know, a... uh, Schmalkald League, S-C-H-M-A-L-K-A-L-D League. Uh, Those were, that's a defense coalition of all of the Lutheran princes. And it was intended to form this coalition to have a treaty so that if somebody attacked one Lutheran prince, all Lutheran princes would come to his defense. Philip of Hesse was a major player in the so-called Schmalkald League. But the deal he struck with Charles V is that he would not follow through with his obligations to the other members of the Schmalkald League. Schmalkald. And then Charles V went to war against the Schmalkald League. And he very quickly defeated them without the support of Philip of Hesse. Knowing, knowing that Philip would not fight. That is that attack that is called the Schmalkald War. Schmalkald War, 1546 and 47. And it was won, obviously, by Charles V. And in 1548, the victorious Charles V, having defeated the Lutheran princes, instituted what is called the Augsburg Interim. It's an interim uh, religious establishment, and it's called an interim because everyone knew that the church was having a, a, a general council at Trent, was just on the verge of happening. And so Charles V, having won the war, said, I'm going to impose the Augsburg Interim on Germany. Uh, it's called an interim because until we, till Trent makes final decisions about whether or not what to do with Lutheranism, we will have this interim resolution to the problem for now. So it's called the Augsburg Interim. And what he did during the Augsburg Interim 
is that Charles V imposed Roman Catholicism back on the Lutheran princes. They were obliged to uphold the old religion, having been defeated by Charles V, until Trent completed its work and rendered an official final decision. Now, he did make some accommodation to the the Lutherans. He did permit, on an interim basis, the marriage of clergy. He did permit that if they were already married, they could stay married and still uh, have a job on an interim basis until Trent made a final decision. And the other thing that he permitted the Lutherans is that the cup should be given to the laity. That had already been established now for 15 or 20 years, and he felt it wouldn't do him any good to push too hard at this point. So, Roman Catholicism as an official doctrine, official ceremonies, except for with these two exceptions, is now reimposed upon these Lutheran princes during the Augsburg interim. There's one little subcategory, one little exception. <coughs> Charles V had also been talking to the prince of Ducal Saxony. And he bought him off. And neither did he defend the Schmalkall League when Charles V attacked. And in particular, in a famous battle in 1547, one of the key battles, Maurice, M-A-U-R-I-C-E, of Ducal Saxony, did not come to the defense of his colleagues at the famous Battle of Muehlberg, one of the decisive battles. And in, uh, as a reward for having uh, taken the side of Charles V against his Lutheran cohorts in the Schmalkall League, uh, Maurice was granted a, a special uh, dispensation, if you will, those in Ducal Saxony were still permitted to publicly affirm and to teach justification by faith alone, although they were required to uphold and to maintain Catholic ceremonies. So the one extra dispensation that Charles V granted to Maurice of Ducal Saxony for his betrayal of the Lutherans again. You can see the small colleague is breaking apart, obviously. Uh, Charles V has been very uh, judicious in the arrangements he has made. Uh, Now, here's where Melanchthon comes into all of this. Melanchthon publicly supported this special dispensation given to Maurice and Ducal Saxony. It's called the Leipzig Interim. So you have General Augsburg Interim, which means the reimposition of of Roman Catholic ceremonies and religion on the Lutheran princes in Germany. But there's a special interim, the Leipzig interim, that applies only to Ducal Saxony, Maurice for his uh, betrayal of the Schmalkall League. And Melanchthon publicly supported the Leipzig interim. He argued that the ceremonies, the Catholic ceremonies that the people in Ducal Saxony had to maintain for this period of this, during this interim 
uh, was perfectly acceptable. And those ceremonies, he said, were adiaphora. They didn't make any real difference. As long as they were permitted to affirm justification, they shouldn't be too upset about the ceremonies. And Melanchthon came out and publicly stated that he supported the Leipzig interim. Not the Augsburg, but the Leipzig. Well, the Genesio Lutherans jumped all over Melanchthon and called him a collaborator with the enemy, someone who had capitulated formally to uh, the Catholics. As you can see, there was a great deal of animosity here. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.